0: So when I say this word covenant, right, uh, it's probably a word that you've heard a lot, especially maybe if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this idea of covenant. Uh, Maybe you've heard of like the Ark of the Covenant. Um, If you're an Indiana Jones fan, yeah. Uh, uh, But um, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, anybody, anybody seen? yeah, 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 yeah that's what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so um, there's, you know, so you have the Ark of the Covenant, then also like maybe a more modern understanding, like the, a covenant of marriage, right? Like the marriage covenant, you maybe have heard that. So this word covenant is something that is used a lot in the Bible. And uh, when we hear the word covenant, there's a lot of images that maybe come to our mind. Uh, I know for me, I think marriage covenant, but in short, here's something that you need to know. Here's a definition of covenant, okay? A covenant is like a co- is a contractual agreement between two parties, right? So when we say that is a covenant, it is a contract between two parties, two either individuals or two groups of people, okay? Now, there's two types of covenants, okay? Now, now, so some of you are like, what does this have to do? Like, trust me. Like, if you thought, so last week, like, here's the thing, guys, that I love is that you guys are getting preaching that I wish I would have gotten in high school. Okay. Not to say anything great about me because I have a lot of flaws and issues. But what I'm trying to say is that like it's stuff that I had to study by myself in in college that I wish someone would have told me when I was in high school. Okay? So, so, like, so, like, hang with me, because everything we're going to talk about, especially going through the book of Hebrews, we have to piece things together, and, like, and if you zone out for a second, like, you could end up being totally lost. So hang with me, all right? So we ha- talk about this idea of covenants. There's two kinds of covenants that you see in the Bible. There's something called unilateral covenants, also known as unconditional. Then there are bilateral covenants, also known as conditional. Okay, so, so I'm just going to say conditional and unconditional, just, you know, because bilateral and unilateral, like, when was the last time you used that in a sentence? Never, right? So, so unconditional and conditional. So when I say an unconditional covenant, what that means is that it's a covenant between two parties, but the, the, the terms of the agreement are held up on, by one person, on one end, right? So like, let's say that I make a covenant with you that I am going to be faithful to be here every single week. Whether you show up or not, I'm going to be here. That's a unilateral covenant, right? Because it's only on one side. But then there's a bilateral covenant, which that is an agreement between two parties where both people, both parties, have things that they have to hold up on their end of the deal. And if one person falls short in their end of the deal, then the covenant is, it can be considered null and void, and it can be broken. Okay? So this is like a covenant such as like, so like a covenant of marriage, right? Between a husband and a wife, right? There's certain commitments that a husband makes to his wife, and a wife makes to her husband, right? So like, so those are the types of things we're talking about. So that's a bilateral covenant, and then you have unilateral covenants, right? So the unconditional, right? God has made a covenant with his people, and it is unconditional, it will not change. It doesn't matter their obedience or their disobedience, right? Then you have conditional, which is God makes a covenant with his people, and if his people are disobedient, then it, will bra- then it breaks the covenant, okay? So that's kind of what we're talking about here. So with that being said, with that being said, in scripture, we see God initiate both of these types of covenants, but there's something that's very important for you to understand. Because what we're talking about today is we're going to talk about the new covenant. The new covenant that we see talked about in scripture. But something you need to know is that all covenants in the Bible are initiated by God and never by man. Does that make sense? That whenever you see God make a covenant with his people in the Bible, it is always God that initiates the covenant. Does that make sense? Is everybody awake? All right. Three of you, cool, okay? So, all right, so it's always initiated by God. So these covenants, also these covenants were always sealed with a promise and a sign to remember that promise. Okay, so there are five covenants that we see in Scripture, and we're going to kind of briefly go over them. Okay, so all five of these covenants are initiated by God and they are sealed with a promise. So, and, and when I say these covenants, you'll probably like, hear them, uh, you'll probably kind of be able to understand what that covenant is just by the name. The first covenant is the Noahic covenant. All right, so this is Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. This is a covenant with who? Noah. There you go. I like your style, right? All right, so this is a covenant with Noah. So the Noahic covenant is an unconditional or unilateral covenant that God makes with Noah, his descendants, and all living creatures, all right? After the flood, all right, so brief story in Genesis chapter six. Basically, the wickedness on earth had gotten so bad that God chooses to, uh, to save Noah and his family and flood the earth, right? So he tells Noah to build an ark, all that wonderful stuff, Okay. So after the flood, God promised that he would never again send a worldwide flood to destroy the earth as an act of his divine judgment or for sin. That's his promise, all right? This is a promise of God. This is the covenant that God has initiated. But like I said, every covenant comes with a sign. What is the sign of the Noahic covenant? Anybody know? The rainbow, right? So this is also said in that passage, right? So the sign, the seal and the sign of this promise is the rainbow. So every time that, they, that Noah would see the rainbow, he would remember God's promise. Remember this, the rainbow is not the promise. The rainbow is the sign to help them remember the promise, all right? Second covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. Who do you think that's about? Abraham, you guys are Bible scholars, okay? So, the Abrahamic covenant. Here's another thing I want you to understand. Not every promise in the Bible is a covenant, okay? So, just because God promises something does not mean that it is a covenant. It's very important, because I say there's five covenants, but there are, like, buku numbers of promises, all right? So, like, just keep that in mind. So, the Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 17, 1 through 4, Abrahamic covenant is another unconditional covenant, and it is one that drives much of the actions of the Old Testament. So if you read the Old Testament, it's important for you to understand God's covenant with Abraham, because if you don't understand God's covenant with Abraham, then a lot of the actions in the Old Testament are not going to make sense. All right, it's not going to make sense. So what is the Abrahamic covenant? Glad you asked. You're on top of your game tonight. All right. God's covenant with Abraham was that he would have a child, right? Right? What was that child's name? Isaac, right? He had a child named Isaac. And, uh, and he would have a child. And also at this time, if you didn't know, Abraham was like really old, okay? Was, Abraham was an old man. He had no children. And God says that you will have a child. And not only that, but through, you, through your line, you will have a lineage of descendants. That your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. They will outnumber the sands of the seashore. And that through your line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All right? So... The immediate fulfillment of this covenant was in Isaac, right? And then through the descendants of Isaac, what you, you have the nation of Israel, right? You have the Jews. So, so do we see that? But the key point, the, to the key promise in this covenant is through you, all the nations will be blessed. Because right, here's the thing. Now, if Abraham's descendants were to be one great nation, then how are all the other nations blessed by one nation, Ultimately, the fulfillment of this covenant promise with Abraham is in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is, uh, is, of an, is, of a, is of Israelite descent, all right? And Jesus is what brings blessing to all nations, right? Because Jesus' death on the cross made salvation possible to all people. So when God's covenant promise to Abraham is that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, He's talking about ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Why is that so important? Because if God made a promise to Abraham, what you're going to see is the reason that God protects the people of Israel oftentimes has nothing to do with Israel being worth it. It has everything to do with the fact that he had a covenant promise to Abraham, and that is why he doesn't wipe them out. So here's the thing. God isn't just loving and nice to them because they deserve it or because he feels good that day. It's because before God is faithful to you, he's first and foremost faithful to his own promises. Because if God was to go back on his covenant promise, then God would make God a liar. So God protects the people of Israel, ultimately, first because of his promise to Abraham, which ultimately brings salvation to the rest of the world. So... What is the sign of this covenant? Now, we're going to be mature when I say this, okay? But the sign of this covenant is the act of circumcision. This is laid out in Genesis chapter 17. If you don't know what that is, you can talk later about it, okay? Uh, or ask your parents. Actually, don't ask your parents. Like, you don't want to come home. You're like, like, if you're a parent, you don't want your kid coming home from church to be like, hey, what's circumcision? You're like, whoa, like, what are you guys talking about? All right? So, but that is the sign, that is the sign of this covenant, all right? And it's important for us to understand this, okay? Because you'll get to points in the Bible, even points in the New Testament, where circumcision appears to be a very important thing to Jewish people. It's incredibly important. Why? Because it was a command that God gave in his covenant with Abraham that was a sign that they were the people of God. Okay? It was symbolic. It was a sign that they were the people of God. So they they did that as a sign. Third covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Who do you think that is about? Moses, you guys, never cease to amaze. All right? It's a good thing these aren't Star Wars quotes. Anyway, all right, Mosaic covenant. That is laid out in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. The Mosaic covenant is a Here's the thing. So all the other covenants to this point, what type of covenant have they been? Unconditional, right? Unilateral, right? It it doesn't matter if Abraham was faithful. It doesn't matter if Israel was faithful. It doesn't matter if Noah was faithful. God was going to fulfill his covenant with them. He's always going to be faithful to to, to his promises in this. The Mosaic covenant is unique in that it is a bilateral covenant. It is a conditional covenant. It's often called the, uh, the Sinai Covenant, but basically this is a covenant that God makes with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai after he leads them out of Egypt. Within this covenant was the entirety of the law, right? The law, the sacrificial system, and more. With the giving of the law, this covenant included blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So if you were obedient to the law, if you were obedient to what God had commanded and called you to do, then there were blessings that would come. But if you were disobedient, then with that came curses. And we said, we came, with that came curses, with that came, you know, the, this is what happens when you were disobedient to God. So the covenant is renewed again in the book of Deuteronomy, for those of you who are interested, before they enter the promised land. So, this is a conditional covenant because the people had to hold up their end of the deal. And that's very, very, very important. Right? They had to hold up their end of the deal. God promises to bless the people and give them victory if they were obedient to what he commanded them to do. And we see this play out in the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges. Right? In the book of Joshua, what does God say to Joshua in the very first chapter? Right? He says, you will have, basically he says, I will be with you. you will, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you are obedient to what I have commanded you to do, right? And what happens when the people of Israel sin against God uh, in the case of when they go and fight against the city of Ai, right? They sinned, and what happened is they go to fight Ai, and they get smacked. Why? Because God's favor was no longer with them because of their disobedience. So they repent of their sin, they fix their problems, they go back, and they have victory. We also see this in the book of Judges, all right? We see this play out a lot. All right. The Mosaic Covenant is a foreshadowing of the new covenant that God institutes with us, which we're going to get into in a little bit. All right. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, does anybody know? I'd be impressed. Does anyone know the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? No? 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 That's what I thought. I had to look it up, so don't worry. It's the Sabbath. All right. So the Sabbath is the sign of the, Mo- of the Mosaic covenant. So th- uh, the seventh day of the week, right? They would take they would, There was a day that no work was to be done and this was to remember God's covenant with them. Fourth covenant, we are flying. And some of you are like, what does this have to do with Hebrews chapter eight? I'm telling you, I'm gonna get there And you're just going to be like, I am so blessed that he said all those covenants. All right. So just, just hang with me. All right. So the fourth covenant is the Davidic covenant. Who do you think that's about? David. All right. So the Davidic covenant is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right, the Davidic covenant is an unconditional covenant where God promises that the descendants of David will rule over God's people for all of eternity. Right? God promises David there will always be someone from your line to sit on the throne over God's people. That is God's promise to Abraham. Now, there's an immediate fulfillment of this in the, in the reign of David's son, Solomon. Right? Solomon becomes king, and Israel is thriving and doing great but there's an ultimate fulfillment of this promise in the person of Jesus, right? Because Jesus is a descendant of David and he will sit on the throne and rule over his people in the new earth and the new Jerusalem at the end of time for all of eternity. What is the sign of this covenant? The sign of this covenant is the lineage of David and the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ. With all that being said, all right, so we just went through all four of the Old Testament covenants. With all that being said, it is important to understand that none of these covenants cancel out the previous ones. There goes the screw. All right. Right? None of these covenants cancel out, like, it's not like when God institutes one covenant, it cancels out the previous covenants. Okay? It does not do that. For instance, the the conditional covenant that God gave to Israel through Moses. All right? Why does God remain faithful to his covenant With Moses, even though the people of Israel are continually faithless, it's because of his covenant with Abraham, which came before, right? So, why do I say all that? Well, you're like, all right, what in the world was that all about? Because the author of Hebrews makes a few interesting statements that if we're not careful, we're, we're going to misunderstand them, all right? First of all, when the author of Hebrews is speaking of the first covenant, what, what, what covenant is he specifically talking about? Because in Hebrews 8, when we, what we read earlier, what does he say? He talks about the first covenant. Well, there's four of them. So, which one is he talking about? Right? Because he's gonna talk, because what he's about to do, he's gonna say the new covenant, the, the relationship that you have with God, and he's gonna compare it to one of the covenants in the Old Testament. If you really want to understand how your relationship with God works, you might want to know what covenant he's talking about. Right? So it appears that he is speaking about the Mosaic Covenant. Why the Mosaic covenant? Because if you read the context of the entire book. It seems to lend itself to be, to, it lends itself to that interpretation, right? So he's talking, when we talked about the first covenant or the former covenant or the old covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, all right? Now, with all that being said, let's see what he says about this old covenant in relation to the new one. All right, the new covenant. First thing that we see is that it is better, Let's read Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 7 again. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right. Now, when I read this, and maybe when you read this, there are a few things that jump out at us when we read it almost immediately. First, I want us to look. Notice what does it say here? It says, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, if you're like me, you read that, you say, all right, if God is perfect and God never makes mistakes, then how is it that he would make a covenant with his people that has faults in it? If God's perfect and everything that God does is perfect and and it is without flaw, then why does it say that the first covenant had faults in it? And then what some people will say, well, there are no faults in it. Well, you can't say that because the Bible clearly says that there are. So what are those faults? Why would God institute a faulty and broken covenant and then replace it with a better one? Like, did God have this idea and then after a few thousand years realize, you know what, this just isn't working. Let me try something else. No, why? Because we have a God who is a sovereign God, who all of his plans are laid out before the foundations of the world. Like, what's going to happen to you tomorrow, God knew about when he created the world. So we can't have this image of God in our mind, that he's just kind of testing out different ideas until one sticks. Everything that God does is perfectly orchestrated. So how do we reconcile this issue? See, for us to understand this new covenant, for us to understand properly what our relationship with God looks like, we must understand it within relation to the old covenant. So, let's first look at the idea of this previous covenant having faults. And what does that even mean? Romans 7, I'll, look at these two verses. Romans 7, 12 says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Psalm nineteen seven. the law of the Lord is perfect. All right, so all of scripture reinforces this idea that God's law is perfect and is without fault. However, when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, what are we talking about? We're talking about God's law. So what's the problem here? Right? All throughout the Bible, it talks about this idea that God's law is perfect, and then we get to this area where it says that this part is not perfect. This is one of those areas where people say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. But remember what I've told you. I've told you this a bajillion times right? What do we do when we get to this idea? What do we do when we have apparent contradictions in the Bible? Here's a good principle to live by, all right? Scripture interprets scripture, and clear passages clarify unclear passages, all right? Does that make sense? Okay, so the Bible will always mesh together when properly understood, So if it seems like something is contradicting, it's because you're not properly understanding one of those verses, possibly both. All right. So if all of the Bible is clearly saying that God's law is perfect, like how else can you interpret that? God's law is perfect. Right? There's no other way to interpret that. So, all right. So that is a clear passage. But it talks about this idea of God's, you know, God's covenant has flaws. And okay, well, all right, so, so, what, are we talk, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to allow all of Scripture as a whole to clarify what seems to be confusing. Makes sense. Good talk. All right. See, this is, and here's the thing, this is why it's important to have a holistic view of Scripture when you read it. This is why you should never take a passage of Scripture and just read it in a vacuum without context of anything else in the Bible. That's how you get heresy and false teachings and false religions and a bunch of other stuff, okay? Remember the difference between a unilateral and a bilateral covenant, right? You guys remember that? You know, you remember those days when I talked about those? Man, good times, okay. Remember that the Mosaic covenant is is a conditional covenant. What does that mean? It means that there's two parts to the deal, There's two parts to the deal. God's law and God's covenant promises through his law. And what's the other part of the deal? Our obedience and the Israelites, right? There's two parts. And if one of those parts is perfect, where do you think the flaw comes in? Us. Us. So when we talk about God's covenant with the people, right, God's covenant is, first of all, his law is perfect, but the covenant has flaws. It's important for us to understand, where does the covenant fall short? It falls short because we don't hold up our end of the deal. We're disobedient. Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Why was the law weakened by the flesh? It was weakened by the flesh because the flesh is incapable of obeying it. It's not that God's law is imperfect or God's covenant is messed up. It's that you and I mess everything up. We're sinners. See, God's previous covenant with his people has been found to have faults because we are incapable of upholding our end of the deal. So often we think that God isn't holding up his end of the deal when in reality, he's the only one sticking true to his word. It's always us. We are sinners. I'm a sinner. Incapable of total obedience. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. The new covenant is a better covenant because it does not depend on your obedience. Does that make sense? You want to know why it's a better covenant? It's because it's built on better promises. What are those better promises? Namely, that it's not based on what you do for God, but what he has done for you. We talked about this last week, right? What is your faith in? How do you know if you're saved? Are you saved because you prayed a prayer? Because if your faith is in the fact that you prayed a prayer, mm, you might not be saved. If If your faith is in the fact that you go to church regularly, if your faith is in the fact that you sing songs, if your faith is in the fact that you cried at church camp, That's not a strong enough promise, Home Slice. You need more. You need more. This new covenant is a better covenant because it does not depend on your obedience or mine. It depends on God's faithfulness and his sovereignty. Romans 9:16. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the first thing that you need to know about this covenant is that it has, is that it fixes the problems with the old one. Why is it a better covenant? Because it fixes the problems with the old one. What was broken with the old covenant? You were. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews who are being tempted to go back to that old covenant. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. If you leave this new covenant to go to the old one, you're taking the problem with you. So many people, they try out Christianity, right? We talked about this last week. They test it out. They stick stick their toe in the water. And they're like, oh, I don't like it. I'll go try something else. Well, you want to know why you don't like it? Because you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And when we leave, we just take the problem with us. So let's dive into this new covenant with the next 15 minutes that I have. Explaining the new covenant. This is verses 8 through 12. Says, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Jacob, or, or with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What is he talking about? He's talking about their disobedience. Okay? He's talking about their disobedience. But then the rest of this covenant, he goes on. And this is a direct quote, like word-for-word quote from Jeremiah 31. What is Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah 31 is God's covenant that he is going to make with you and with me, with his people. And he's basically saying there is coming a day when this will be the covenant. Spoiler alert, the covenant we're living in with right now. So here God is telling the prophet Jeremiah of a new covenant that he will make with the people, with his people. Verse eight, Verses 8 and 9, God describes the problem with the previous one, namely the disobedience of the people. Then he lays out what this new covenant will look like. Let's walk through this covenant together, all right? You awake? You with me? All right. Like, we're getting edumacated tonight, okay? All right. You're going to learn today, son. All right. All right. First thing of this new covenant, first part of this new covenant what does he say? For, their, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. first thing you need to know about your relationship with God is and God's covenant with you is that it brings internal transformation. What was the original problem with the previous covenant? We've talked about it like agnosium at this point, right? The problem is not that you and I are not obedient to God. The problem is, is that we can't be obedient to God. See, if you and I had the potential to, fu- to fully, totally be obedient to the law, then God would not have instituted a new covenant. He would have just told us to try harder. Which is what many of you are trying to do, by the way. Just try harder. Which is not what a new relationship, which is not what a relationship with God through Christ looks like. Just trying harder. The problem is that we can't be obedient. Why? Because we have a sinful flesh that prohibits us from doing so. And without going on for days reading the verses, I'll just read four. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 7.18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Hello, anybody can relate to that? Okay, Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. If there was any doubt. 1 John, I didn't even write this one down, 1 John says, if anyone claims that he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. All right, because of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, which is in Genesis 3, and because sin is passed down through the Father, Deuteronomy 5, we all have been born with a sinful nature, incapable of total obedience to the things of God. All right, so the law was introduced to show us that we are sinners. Because here's the thing, like, people didn't become, start becoming sinners because of the law. Why? Because in Genesis 6, God destroyed the whole earth because of the people's sin, and he hadn't given the law yet. So what, the law is simply an expression of a standard that was already in place. Does that make sense? So like, if it's illegal to litter, and you didn't know it, does that mean it's not illegal for you? No. It just means you didn't know. So what God does is he gives his law, and what does his law do? It reveals the fact that we're sinners. Like, we're like, hey, you know what, I think I got this right. Here's the law of God. Oh, No, I'm not. I don't have it right. Right? We get this realization. Right? It was given to reveal our sinfulness and to point to our need for a Savior. Here's the thing. If you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you think, man, I shared the gospel, and in your sharing of the gospel, that person does not understand the fact that they need a Savior, you have not shared the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that, like, you go around telling people, you're a sinner, and just beat them over the head. Don't do that. Right? But, like, in sharing the gospel, like, it has to come up eventually. It has to come up eventually. Romans 3, 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet So the law reveals to us what God desires, namely to live lives that glorify him by being holy, set apart, and 100% obedient. So for 1,500 years, this is what the people of God attempted to do. They attempted to be holy, set apart, 100% obedient, and they could never achieve it. Never. Their relationship with God was based on what they did, and they could never pull it off. You see they were conforming to external law while being internally sinful. They were trying to do all the external stuff but the problem was is that internally they were still sinful. They were trying to do what they could never do namely be good enough. However, what is the first part of this new covenant? And this is good news. This is exciting and encouraging. What's the first part? I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What was the law written on at first? What was the the law of the previous covenant? What was it written on? Stone. What's it written on now? It's written on your heart. Put in your mind. Rather than externally seeking to conform to what God has called you to do, God's covenant with you and with me is that he will change you from the inside out. That he will give you a new heart and new desires. He will give you a new heart and a new mind. And this is one of the ways that you can have confidence that you're truly saved. What? Because your desires start to change. You start to hate the sin that you once loved and love the God that you once hated. Right? Your desires start to change. Our obedience to Christ is fueled by an internal change rather than an external standard. Your obedience to Christ is fueled by an internal change rather than an external standard. So, how does he do this? Great question. How does God change you from the inside out? Great question. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is what I'm talking to you about. Like When you read the Bible, like, remember scripture. So if you can remember scripture when you read this, how does he do that? Oh, I remember this verse, right? Ezekiel 36. It says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So how are we changed from the inside out? This happens because when we are saved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, God now gives a sinner a new heart and new desires. Why? Because his Holy Spirit is living within them. Like, so here's the thing. If you profess to be a Christian and your life looks nothing like what Christ would desire, can I possibly say that the Holy Spirit might not be in you? How can you say you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God and look no different? Is it possible that you're deceived into thinking that you have something that you don't have? I talked about this last week. You see, our old selves, which were dead in sin, Ephesians 2, is now alive because we have been given a new spirit. And with this in mind, we have a sinful flesh, Right? we have been given a new spirit, so we're spiritually alive, but our flesh is still sinful. So what do we have? Now we have a conflict that we want to do things, but at the same time we don't want to do those things. Perfect example. I know everyone in this room, for the most part, wants to read their Bible more. But at the same time, everyone in this room hates having to read their Bible. How does that happen? Because the Holy Spirit within you, if you're a Christian, desires nothing more than to get into the word of God. But your flesh, which is sinful and opposed to the things of God, wants you to do nothing. Like, would rather you do anything else. So what do you do? You have to subject the flesh and allow the spirit to grow. This is what Galatians 5.17 is talking about. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This is so pivotal to understand. That our obedience to Jesus is fueled by a heart that has been changed by him. So if someone's heart has not been changed, don't expect them to be obedient. And we say this, right? We say we understand this. But so many people think, well, if I just go to church or if I pray a prayer or if I check all the Christian boxes, then I can be saved. But that's not the gospel. It's not. And we say we know this, but we find ourselves slipping into this mode of thinking all the time. And how do I know that? Because when we attempt to share the gospel with people or when someone who is not a Christian comes to church, what are some of the first things that we want them to do? We want them to change the way that they behave. We seek morality training rather than life transformation. When someone is, I'll give you a perfect example. Someone is openly living a life of homosexuality. Or maybe, we'll make it a little bit more applicable to you. Someone who is openly living in continued pornography. You know what they need? They don't need to be given a bunch of tips on how to overcome those issues. What they need is the gospel. Because with the right relationship with God comes a change of heart. And a change of heart will fuel obedience to Christ. As long as you're, you're, if you're trying to get someone to look like Jesus without having them filled with Jesus, then you're wasting your time. I'll give you another example. We we had a guy in, in our college group. He wanted to talk to me one night. We went outside. We were talking. And he basically started to tell me about, like, his testimony. And I was not ready for this. He's just like, hey, can we talk? I was like, yeah, sure. And then, like, right? And I was like, oh, geez. Okay. But with that come, came basically a curse word every other word. Here's my life. And it was, bah, bah, beep, 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 beep. I was like, you know, right? You know what he doesn't need in that moment? For me to say, well, first you need to stop cussing. That's not what he needs in that moment. You know what he needs? He needs the gospel in that moment. He needs the gospel. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of 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 his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the first part of this covenant, internal transformation. Second part of this covenant, I'm almost done, intimacy with God. Let's go back. What does he say? He goes, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each other to know uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Remember the old covenant. What was the old covenant? The the people could only approach God and worship and sacrifice by going through the priests. There was very little relationship when it came to God. There was very little intimacy when it came to God. When we read the Old Testament, we read these stories of God speaking to people, right? And it's just like, you know, like, Moses. And we're like, oh, right? And we just kind of like, why doesn't God do that anymore? Right? Why doesn't God do that anymore? But Here's the thing. Like, that was not the normal experience for the average Israelite. 99.9% of them never heard that voice. Never heard that burning bush moment. All they did was they heard from Moses, or they heard from Aaron, or they heard from Joshua, or they heard from a guy who heard from God. There was no intimacy. There's very little intimacy in the relationship with God. The everyday for the everyday worshipper of God. No audible voice, no overwhelming experience, simply obedience and faith. However, we are promised something here that is extraordinary. I don't think you understand this, is that we will know God in an intimate and personal way. Have you ever considered God speaking about you in this way? Looking at you and saying, "That's my child and I'm their God." Like like there's there's two extremes, right? There's this idea of God being high and exalted and holy and set apart which he is. But if your view of God being high, holy and set apart and exalted does not also come with an idea of him being intimate and personal, then it's unhealthy. But also, if your idea of God being intimate and personal, like a teddy bear, but at the same time Him not being high, holy, exalted, and set apart, then that's also unhealthy, right? God is, has a desires an intimate, personal relationship with you. Isaiah forty three three and four. Listen to this. Listen to this verse. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba and exchange for you. Listen, because you are precious in my eyes, and I, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Truly, I truly feel that some of you need to hear this tonight, and, and not just in a cliche way, but understand, God loves you. God loves you. Truly, personally. One of my favorite quotes, it's a surprise, surprise, an A.W. Tozer quote. It says, God knows the most about you. God knows the worst things about you, but he also loves you more than anyone else does. There's a, there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, the best way to make a man keep a law is to make him love the lawgiver. If you want to be obedient to God, fall in love with who he is. And that's a promise that we have in this covenant. Not only that he will change us, give us a new heart and a new spirit and a new life in him, but also that it will be one that is personal and intimate. We can go to him whenever we want. And the last part forgiveness of sins. Verse 12 For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What was the ultimate issue with the old covenant? The main problem was that we're sinners. But our sin separates us from God, and we need forgiveness. And some of you are probably thinking, well, why not just continue sacrificing animals? That's what they did back then. Well, the problem with that is Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were never intended to make someone right with God. They were always intended to point to the need for a greater sacrifice. Because nothing that you give God can pay the debt that you owe him. And, but God forgives. God forgives you and God forgives me. How does he forgive us? He forgives us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And some of you need to be remembered, some of you need to be reminded of this, that in Christ there is true forgiveness, that the mistakes that you have made in, in the past do not define who you are in the eyes of God. That if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, the mistakes of yesterday are yesterday. Second Corinthians five twenty one. What does it say? For anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have joy. Know that that sin and that shame and that regret and that guilt that you feel can be left at the foot of the cross as a dead person that is no longer you. Walk in that. And here's something you need to know. All other covenants find their fulfillment in the new covenant. All of them. Let's go back through them. I mean, because here's the thing. If God's going to replace one covenant, does that mean, if God's going to replace the old covenant with the new covenant, does that mean that the promises of the old covenant are gone? No. No. God fulf- the New Covenant fulfills the Noahic Covenant because God will never judge the world for its sin by flooding the earth because He will judge the world, he will judge them by the blood of his Son, Jesus. Those who have not received Christ will not suffer the flood of water but the lake of fire. The Abrahamic Covenant, all the nations of the world, including you and me, are blessed by the descendants of Abraham because of Christ's death on the cross, making salvation possible for all people. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled in the New Covenant. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate king to rule over his people for all of eternity. But lastly, we see the Mosaic Covenant. We are forgiven of our sins, filled with the Holy Spirit, and able to live in obedience to Christ. However, there is another aspect, because if you remember, there is blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Right? Right? And something that is incredible about the new covenant is that God keeps his promises for blessing his people by attributing the righteousness of Jesus onto them. So not only are you forgiven of sins, but you receive the blessings of if you had never sinned. That one day in heaven, you will receive blessings from God based on the obedience of Jesus in your place. That's amazing. And remember... All of these covenants had a sign. The Noahic covenant, rainbow. Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. Mosaic covenant, the Sabbath. The Davidic covenant was the line of David and the kingship. What is the sign of God's covenant with you? It's Jesus. But there's two things that we actually do today that are actually given to us in Scripture as signs of remembering God's covenant with us. The first one is communion. When Jesus is with his disciples, he says, he, he says this is my body. Right? This is my, broken for you and for many. He goes, this is my blood. Of what? Of the new covenant. Shed for you and for many. Take and drink as often as you will in remembrance of me. Just as God said to Noah, every time you see that rainbow, you remember the covenant I made with you. God says, every time you take communion, you remember the covenant I made with you. Remember that it's not the covenant itself, but it's a way that we remember it. The second one is baptism. Baptism is another sign of this covenant. Why? Because what does it symbolize? We go under the water, it's symbolic of being buried, as Christ was buried, being buried to our sin and raised to new life. So every time that we see someone get baptized, every time, like, if you get baptized, that is a way of remembering God's covenant with you. And like, hey, like, we have people getting baptized, like, like students getting baptized the next three Sundays, which is amazing. And every time, here's the thing. For me, it's amazing to watch that happen because it's such a blessing to see someone like, make, take that step in their faith. But here's another thing. It's also a reminder to me of what God did for me. And if you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that confidence in God's relationship with you, then here's the thing. Know that communion doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. If you want to talk to somebody about that, please talk to me Talk to Noah, talk to Paige, Fadinka, Jay, Mike, uh, Zach, Kobe, Austin, Aaron, Brock. Like, talk to any of us because we are here for you. Like, I know, like, today, tonight might have felt more like it was a history lesson than a sermon. But know that, like, everything that God promises to you is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's only through placing your faith in Him that you can have a true relationship with Him.